0: That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: Hello, everybody. Daniel here. Uh, the Cannonball is proud to be part of the Agora Podcast Network. And uh Agora Podcast Network is sponsored by uh OnlinegreatBooks.com. Uh this is something of absolutely of interest for uh any and all cannonball listeners out there, because onlineGreatbooks.com is designed to help you develop a regular habit of reading the great books. Uh you'll be uh part of these tools include weekly reading goals, email reminders, uh, and other accountability tools. But uh probably most effectively a monthly uh, video conference with uh, other students of the classics like yourself, Um, a two hour video conference uh, with a small community of readers to discuss the text that you've been reading in a Socratic seminar led by a trained Socratic host. Um, And this is pretty cool. You, not only will you get to uh, discuss, you know, being exposed to sort of the great ideas, the foundational concepts of the Western uh, intellectual tradition, but also you'll be able to say with confidence, having read the text yourself, when and exactly how Plato is full of it. Uh, That's one of the great delights of engaging with the classics, not only uh, being electrified by great ideas you encounter, but also knowing when uh, Aristotle or Descartes says something just completely off the wall. Uh, It's fantastic. Onlinegreatbooks.com. You'll have uh, check-ins and reading goals, accountability tools to keep you on track. It's a wonderful service. uh, They'll send the books to you. Uh, Absolutely terrific. So, if you're interested in developing a lifelong habit of reading and studying the great books, go to OnlineGreatBooks.com, enter the promo code CANNON, that's C A N N O N, uh, to let them know that we sent you, and you'll get 25% off your first three months. And now, on to the show.
2: Hello, uh, and welcome to the Cannonball, a podcast attempt to read all the books in the Western canon. My name is Claude Myron Gooser, and with me is my co-host, Daniel Doherty. Daniel, how you doing?
1: Hey, hey, I'm uh, pretty good. Uh, we were both before hitting record, commiserating about its, its its final season for the Good Doctor, and uh, of course, those of us in the public library game know that its uh, summer reading is is winding up. So it's uh, it's one of those times. But you know what? We're taking uh, we're we're having fun because we're we're doing something we love, and this is this is terrific. I'm I'm happy to be back after uh, a, a little ways away, but the. Uh, Claude talking Don Quixote with uh, Chris Ludovici last month was just terrific. I really enjoyed that uh, that episode. So I'm, I, I was, I was, I was incredibly jealous. I was like, why it, well, can't I be doing that? <laughs>
2: it, it was, it, it was nothing if not quixotic. Um, you know, it, in this weird way, uh, we're we're kind of coming back to where we began. I think we've talked about this before, mm-hmm. but in the original <clears throat> attempt to do this. Uh, you and I hooked up over Don Quixote, nonetheless. Yeah. Um, I asked you if you'd read this thing, and you read the whole damn thing, uh, <laughs> all, all just because I'd asked you. And we had such a blast uh, talking about it that we came back together and like, well, why don't we do this whole thing? Yeah, so it, it, yeah. <laughs> in some ways, this is the beginning of this podcast, the beginning of our friendship. Uh, and Daniel, I love this book. Mm-hmm. I, I I really like this. I've been in a bad mood for a long, long time, but I spent about an hour, hour and a half today putting all the notes together, going back through it, rereading sections, and uh, it just put me in a better mood. Yeah, there, there, there's something about this book that just hits me, and if. Um, if part of what we're doing is is being effective about this or or examining the affective qualities uh then then I just have to say that this book always lightens me I, yeah I, I feel lighter when I read it
1: i think that's that's an excellent uh I think that's a excellent observation and you're right I think maybe we've gotten. Well, I can't. I can't remember if we've gotten away from discussing the affective part of all this literature because I think Dante or uh, Montaigne scrambled my brain so much. Um, but no, I, I think you're absolutely right because in the sort of the feeling of, and of course, you know, Don Quixote is it's an it's an enormous work. It's an enormously varied work, um, but it does have a kind of a through line. I think of of uh, how best to put it, deflating pomposity. Yeah, and that always, <laughs> as as someone who has never really had a lot of dignity himself, that always puts me <laughs> in a better mood to see you know, uh, to see the the wealthy dowers are going a pie in her face. You know what I mean?
2: Yeah. Well, I mean it's, <clears throat> and it's even more than that. Like it, it's it, it does both. It does the high and the low. It does a whole mm. lot of other stuff. And part of the fun uh, is the style, which is weirdly. High and low at once, but I, I guess we'll probably talk about that in a little bit. What we're what we're going to do for this episode? Okay, I, I feel like we're doing two episodes about Don Quixote before we even get into Don Quixote. Yeah. What we're really sort of doing in this episode is talking about the prologue and giving some of the the background for the novel. You're fairly conversant in Golden Age Spain mm-hmm. in terms of the history of it. Um, I'm not necessarily conversant in Golden Age Spain, uh, but I do know a lot of the literary background and some of the genre stuff. And I did yeah, some, yeah. some research uh, into the, the criticism of that. And this is more or less a contextual episode uh, before we get into the meat of Don Quixote. yeah, But I, I think this is important context to think about. This is sort of like the historical, intellectual stuff to know beforehand, before you dive in first. Yeah, I, th- I think um,
1: and, and I, I'm definitely I, I know this is, of course, uh, contested territory in the the literary criticism world, but I'll go ahead and lay my cards on the table as a visual history nerd. I think the Societal context of any work is extremely important, um, and you know, and again, that's just me being a big old nerd because that's what I like learning about. I, I like getting as close as I can to getting some kind of like some kind of snapshot of what was the society like as well as I can, which, of course, you can never, never even begin to approach, and uh, and but that's a whole other discussion into historiography. Well,
2: no, I mean that's that honestly, that's the way a lot of literary studies have gone. I mean. Mm-hmm. Okay that's antithetical to Bloom's project, but i I'll speak up for the profession um that's that's really for me the most fascinating aspect of thinking about this mm-hmm. uh, what was the work like when it appeared? what were right. the expectations what what was going on there there's this tendency to want to treat and, and I think we talked about this in the first episode there's this tendency to want to treat literature as this kind of monumental thing that how do i put it It, it's transcendental it's there forever Mm -hmm. and ever and always you you don't need to incorporate it think about it think through it think about what it meant then think about what it meant now take on the Complete complexity of what a literary work means. I think there's a popular uh, imaginary form of ah, the great transcendental works of all time. This is sort of what it means forever and ever and always, and that's just not true.
1: Right. It's a kind of it's a kind of strong definition of a term like timeless, mm-hmm. uh, ra- rather than where I would I would see a term like timeless meaning like there's there are elements that you can that are going to be enjoyable. Or or instructive or effective. We'll just use that broader term effective yeah. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. to a to a wide swath of uh, of persons in all kinds of circumstances and all kinds of temporal uh, station. Um, but yeah, they're, they're, yeah, I, I think that's. I'm going to oppose that to timelessness, meaning that the the work itself is not of a time, which is which is absurd, to my opinion. Anyway, this is an, all a big digressive lead in into me getting to blather on about. What is going on with Spain in the 16th and 17th centuries? And the answer is everything. It's laying the foundation <laughs> of the modern global world. This is one of those topics that um, I guess if, if any of you all have checked out the, uh, the Cannonball blog, I, I sort of did a little bit of word vomit a, a few weeks ago to kind of get – I don't know, stake out my interest in my, my sort of energy – about it, if you will, if you will permit me, such a Southern California thing to say, um, but uh, but I, I really do feel like the the milieu of Don Quixote is one of a a society which in which it's sort of its founding myths, its uh, its threads of identity, at least among, and I guess we have to clarify, we're talking about elite culture for the most part. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, what, we're, what we're talking about is elite culture. We're talking about court culture and aristocratic culture, elite church culture. Uh, but the the threads that had gone into Spain and how Spain, and again, even calling it Spain is a little anachronistic at this point. It's sort of the unified monarchy of Castilia and Aragon. Um, and actually in personal union with Portugal. Uh, but all of these are very varied It's a very varied society, a very varied uh, peninsula at this point.
2: Right. That's that's one of the the things. Spain isn't quite Spain yet. It's much later that it it encapsulates uh, a sort of sense of nationhood. Right now, it's a bunch of minor kingdoms thrown together under a bunch of major kingdoms and a ton of different cultures and a ton of different languages trying Mm -hmm. to sort of Figure it out, yeah,
1: right, and part of how they figure that out is a sort of common elite identity as a frontier society, right, and what you have is the is a frontier society increasingly becoming the hub mm. but and I, and I think this is where a lot of the sort of the tension and maybe not necessarily sort of dynamism might not be the <clears> word, <throat> but I think part of um, and honestly, I think the I think the contemporary United States of America has for a long time had this same dichotomy going where it's a society that Its founding myths are predicated on frontierdom, yet it is absolutely a core territory. Mm. Or, as as in in this, at least for Spain, it is in the time of Cervantes consolidating its position as a core territory. Because, sort of, the the generations Cervantes comes about a couple of generations into the Spanish imperial project, um, which, you know, sort of traditionally regarded as kicking off in 1492, where you have the dual events of the kind of the closing of the frontier with the finishing of the reconquista officially where uh, Ferdinand and Isabel lead their united kingdom of Castile and Aragon into obliterating the final uh, muslim dominated political entity in the Iberian peninsula the kingdom of granada and also that same year the of course the famous colombian uh, uh, expedition that they financed finds the uh, basically what you know the sort of the, the the caribbean islands uh, that's you know, Columbus uh lands on hispaniola what is today uh split between Haiti and the Dominican Republic and after you know a couple of more voyages uh after that success discovers the continent of south america <coughs> central america and this so this sort of starts a you know you've closed off one frontier for good kind of um with the end of muslim political power in iberia it's it's of course not the to say that the era of <laughs> the era of uh, beating up on Muslims and Jews had ended in 1492, absolutely not. Uh, but I'll talk a little bit more about that later. Um, but you have the closing off of one frontier, and all of a sudden, the most incredibly massive frontier that this, this society has ever could not even conceive of opens up, um, and so. Beginning with sort of the great uh, – we know, of course, the great names of these uh, conquistadors, which is a sort of a catch-all term, which includes a lot of very again, very, – I'm going to use the <laughs> not very uh, mellifluent phrase, very varied a lot in, in all this. <laughs> but the term conquistador encapsulates a lot of different kinds of people. Um, you have uh, – but something they all had in common was this kind of almost a freebooter in the name of the Castilian monarchy. And specifically mm. Castilian monarchy. Um, even though the state itself was a sort of personal union of Castile and Aragon, the imperial expansion was done under the kind of bureaucratic control of the Castilian part of that dual monarchy. Um, right. So I guess that's something to keep in mind. And that's one of the reasons why the sort of the Castilian uh, culture, Castilian language is easily the most dominant Overseas and sort of the the Iberian holdings uh, that came overseas. So, and that's be,
2: that, to to intervene yeah. for five seconds. That's one of the the issues that we keep seeing in the book, and mm-hmm. that that sort of keeps occurring in Spain. You keep talking about the Castilian language. That's essentially what becomes Spanish, right? But that's only one of many languages or dialects. That are operative in Spain at the time, right?
1: Exactly, yeah. You, we can talk uh-huh. about, say, uh, Castilian Spanish, uh, Aragonese would have been another big one, uh, Catalonian, Catalan, which yeah. is uh, like uh, – and all these at this – really at this point are not mutually intelligible. I think it's better to think of them as separate languages really <clears throat> dialects. Uh, you had Galician uh, off yeah. the west, Portuguese, um, Leonese had been largely absorbed in Castilian by this point and Arabic still. Um, right. This is still a point where the formerly, uh, you know, the former populations—not just you know former Muslims, but also uh, sort of Christian populations who had acculturated to their Muslim Arab and Berber uh, sort of political elites were in the process of being Castilianized, basically, because Castile had really taken the lead on that.
2: And um, if I could interrupt you for one more, uh, I I just want to say. This is going to be a callback. There's a reason I'm asking you about the varied cultures of Spain at the moment. But yeah, so it's 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 a hodgepodge of stuff. But the sort of conquering part, the New World part, is under the aegis of Castile. Right.
1: OK. And, and so sort of, you know, we know the famous names like uh, Pizarro, uh, who was, of course, most uh, most famous for his, uh, quote unquote, conquest of the Inca. Um, and again, this, this is going to be very qualified terms because things like conquest, there's a lot of stereotyped narratives about all these. And, and as with any uh, just listeners blanket, uh, just as a, as a blanket caveat. There's always so much more to the story about anything you think you know about history. Um, yeah, and uh, but yeah, you got Pizarro, you have Cortes, who uh, you know famously uh, led the Spanish expedition into what is today Mexico.
2: And um, if Neil Young is to be believed, killed a lot. <laughs> right. And, and no, he I, did. I, okay. Yeah. I, I'm. I'm. Being ironic and snarky because I don't know how else to be. This is also the history of genocide,
1: right? Well, okay. it's 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 a it's a genocide, and also it's a kind of it's an inadvertent genocide from the standpoint of, uh, of course, famously the Europeans introducing all kinds of new diseases to the New World, which did a lot of their work for them. Yeah, but also it feeds <clears throat> into the legend that the idea is that oh, about five or six hundred guys knocked out this. Enormous, powerful state in central Mexico. Well, right. not exactly. They were a new. They were kind of a new player in a very old game. Because yeah. the thing, something to recall about uh, Mesoamerica and uh, and the Andean civilizations. When we when we when we talk about like the, there's this presumption that well the Aztec Empire had been there forever or the Inca Empire had been there forever. Both of those states were pretty recent by the standards of their. Cultures. These were basically just kind of the most – these were just the most recent hegemonic powers over a very, very old cultural stratum. Mm. Um, like, for example, like, the, the Aztec Empire, what we know as the Aztec Empire, had really only sort of coalesced about 120, 130 years before Cortes arrived. Um, the Inca Empire was really even younger than that. It had really coalesced its power about 100 years before the Spanish mm. arrived. But the cultures that they grew from have roots going back deep, deep into into uh prehistory and into uh and really written history, especially in the case of well I guess what we would know
2: as written histories in Mesoamerica right. and the Yucatan. Um but okay, the, so yeah. What did that mean for Spain? Right. Like what did it mean that they'd sent all these guys over they quote unquote conquered, i.e., murdered <laughs> uh, yep. all these people. Uh, what did did that mean for Spain politically and culturally? Well, what it
1: meant for Spain was that it was now Spain was now the target of a massive funnel of wealth. Mm-hmm. They and and really the the project which which began. Really began, you know, which began really in earnest under the reign of Charles V, who I kind of in, in that blog post that I word vomited about uh, was this almost the closest thing to a universal monarch Europe had until Napoleon, uh, yeah. who was the hereditary monarch of all of the Habsburg lands and the Holy Roman Empire plus Spain, uh, and you know, well, you know, Spain will use a shorthand for Castile and Aragon, um, and uh, what it really became is that the, you know, the the, the Sp- the Spanish the Spanish frontier society it just basically sort of transplanted that God and gold ethos yeah. f- away from their sort of southern frontier of, of reconquest or reconquista. And there was a whole there's basically a whole new arena of heathens to <laughs> unleash okay. themselves upon. And so all of the And so that's where that kind of frontier culture comes from, because you have a an aristocracy that had Legitimated itself on holy war, essentially. It legitimated okay. itself on uh, this kind of, uh, you know, so, and aristocracies everywhere legitimate themselves with warfare. But the Spanish aristocracy, especially, have legitimated themselves with holy warfare against an infidel. And that's the big arena now, is you have this entire continent, two entire continents of, uh, of infidels to so, subjugate.
2: It, is that sort of like. <clears throat> Okay, is that sort of how to think about it? They finished one Cold War and now mm-hmm. Cold War times two? Is that right? Yeah, what, a Cold okay. War that's,
1: uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's hot to begin with. And then uh, it's sort of a mistake to think that once, you know, once the quote unquote conquests are over, then everything is hunky dory. And again, that's, that's a stereotype that uh, I think elides a great deal of native agency. There, yeah, were, yeah, yeah. there was there was a very extensive resistance from a great number of quarters of Indigenous Americans to this imperial project that went on for <laughs>
2: centuries. No fooling, right? Uh, yeah,
1: <laughs> it's not just the, the, the stereotype is that Cortez comes in, knocks over Montezuma, and then yeah, Mexico no. is Spanish ever after, and that's you know that's not how it
2: happened. It's a process. Yeah, it's, it's um, still not how it happened.
1: <laughs> right, right. Uh, but uh, but an interesting thing kind of happens in this imperial project, and it really. This really begins and the world of of, uh, Cervantes, (coughs) kind of the milieu of elite culture of Cervantes, begins developing under Charles's successor, his son, Philip II. And Philip II is most famous in the kind of the English-speaking realm as being the the great nemesis of Elizabeth of England. Um, He's the guy – he's the Spanish Armada guy. That and that's probably where you've probably most heard the most about uh, Philip II. But more importantly, right. he is in control of in uh, he sort of as you know as a way to sort of keep the peace in Europe and to keep everyone from getting too freaked out. This unified uh, monarchy of Charles V is split up uh, when Charles V actually abdicates. He's almost like Diocletian. Uh, in the Roman mm. Empire, he he retires himself and splits the empire among various successors. So Philip II gets the Spanish part, and of course, by extension, the Castilian part, which is this massive overseas empire which is which is developing. And partly partly because of Philip II's personal piety, um, and partly because of kind of a dynamic mm. I'll talk about in a second, the elite culture of this sort of the the home bureaucracy of Castile Increasingly falls into the hands of the church. You're seeing hmm. more and more that the the councils that Philip relies upon, the sort of the, what we might call the privy council, you know, uh, or you know his of royal royal advisors, are increasingly pulled from the elite ranks of the church rather than the aristocracy. Partly hmm. because Philip doesn't exactly trust all of these powerful landowning military families. You know, that's of course. Where else do you get usurpers and uh, and rebels, but powerful military families? But also because Philip II himself was an extremely religious person, and he was extremely religious in specifically a Counter Reformationary sense. Okay, this is also Philip II's reign tracks very closely; it, it, it overlaps very much over the first flowering of Reformation, and it his later his later reign. Is sort of the beginning of counter-reformation Which of course adopted Basically the Spanish Church culture Imprinted itself on Catholicism At large at this point Because they were such a wellspring that counter-reformation Drew on partly because Spain had proven so immune To reformation so (laughs) the church At large you know the Pope and the great (laughs) cardinals Are looking like well Spain seems to not have a problem with reformation Let's see what they're doing (laughs) <laughs> and we kind of follow follow their lead. But Philip II himself is oh, an boy. interesting guy. And his his piety was such that uh his he, he was well known as a as a bookish person. He had the largest mm-hmm. private library in Europe at the time, uh was his sort of personal library. And his uh, uh according to some of the sources I read, his his sort of his bedside he had a bedside bookcase with 40 volumes. All but two of which were religious devotionals. What a schmuck. He was <laughs> – well, he was very he, – he took his own piety very seriously and he expected his realm to take it very seriously. So okay. he, Philip II is kind of setting the pace. He's setting the pace okay. for all this. As, as opportunities for advancement in the home country kind of close off, right, you have – you know, it used to be if, you had, if you're a wealthy landowner and you have a bunch of sons because that's what you want to do and as long as there's infidel territory to go throw them at so that they can conquer their own <laughs> and carve out their own fiefdom, it's all well and good. Now you have that frontier is closed off. What the hell are you going to do with all these second sons? What are you going to do with all them? They're, this is really the class that the conquistadors as a group are largely drawn from. The, the kind of impoverished aristocracy The Mm -hmm. sort of the second and third sons of the more sort of the more established or greater aristocrats, and even some of the kind of the first sons—people you wouldn't exactly expect to go off—you know, trying to find their adventure way off in an alien world, essentially. Partly because Philip II is so—he's so much more comfortable with church advisors. He promotes churchmen. He promotes cardinals. He promotes bishops to these powerful sort of. Uh, sort of central uh, roles in the administration of Spain proper that, well, mm-hmm. if you're going to make anything of yourself, it's going to have to be overseas. Yeah. It's going to have to be over in the colonies. <laughs> and specifically, the uh, uh, an institution develops called the viceroyalty. And it's pretty interesting okay. that these the, – the the Spanish Empire in the Americas is carved up into essentially sort of mirror – Royal realms that kind of mirror The uh, the way that Castile is structured And so the viceroy In all of these places is essentially Operates as the king in New Spain, the king in New Granada Which is today like Colombia and Panama New Spain is what uh, what we would call Mexico And most of the western United States Actually, which okay. <laughs> the United States uh, Conquered in the 1840s um, But so so You have this, like here's where Basically that's, you know the, the spirit of this kind of piously informed errancy, basically, I, I know, like yeah. you, you guys talk about errancy, uh, you know, or at least you did in <laughs> your kind of intro um, in the last episode. Uh, that's where that is all funneled, okay. and that That kind of energy, <clears throat> that kind of spirit, uh, is is funneled into this into the empire. Whereas at home, it becomes increasingly more like uh, a theocracy, essentially. Uh, where yeah. it's literally ruled by the churchmen.
2: Okay, so that is that's the historical background, and that's sort of like the 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 situation in which Cervantes is, is trying to do something. Yes. Uh, okay, so that's my klutzy, klutzy segue. Into trying to talk a little bit about, um, I guess, the literary background of what this thing is. Yeah. Okay. And and it's really important to keep in mind that this thing, all right, we call it a novel now, um, but this thing is something that doesn't quite fit okay yeah um all right so in in typical goozer fashion uh, I went to the 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 library that's attached to my school and took out probably a dozen or so books uh on critical theory and don quixote and I ended up using two so of those two (laughs) um no, there, there, there's a lot of fascinating stuff done. The, the problem is uh, we're dealing with a book that was written in Spanish, so most of the literary criticism is in Spanish. There there are two major sources that I'm using for the sort of background. Uh, one of them is one that I would recommend for any listeners who really want to go home. It, like, it, it, if you're itching to do some background discovery on Don Quixote, Uh, it's Cervantes Don Quixote from the Open Yale Courses Mm -hmm. Um, it's by uh, Roberto Gonzalez Echeverria I'm not even going to pretend that I can do the Spanish pronunciation Um, I I teach a lot of Spanish speakers and they laugh when I try to roll my R's. Um, (laughs) I can try. I'm not going to. But Echeverria is uh, – it's part of the Open Yale Courses series. And uh, Echeverria's notes are all actually available online if you want to go look them up. And they're uh, – It gets a little tedious at times because its it literally is basically just course notes that were transcribed and put into book form with a little bit of editing. So it's got some of that um, repetition. It's got some of that, Mm -hmm. hey, I'm talking to you right now informality. So I guess if you like... Our dog and pony show, you might like this. But as a scholar, I found it a little tedious, but at the same time, extraordinarily um, informative in terms of the cultural and, uh, I guess, generic. I I don't mean generic in a pejorative terms. I I seriously mean it in terms of the genre of, Mm -hmm. of Don Quixote. All right, so that was one of the most important sources, and the other is Michael McKeon, M-C-K-E-O-N. He did The Origins of the English Novel, 1600 to 1740. It's mostly concerned, like it says, with the English novel, and it's – it, it's actually a fairly recent book it, it sounds like one of those imperious tomes from the 1960s where um, you know I, I love going back into the literary criticism where you get these these books from the 50s or the 60s that are just like the symbol in Henry James and you, you have to stop and say oh okay so you're going to cover it all but um, it, it, it sounds a little totalizing but McKeon's book is, is really phenomenal in terms of tracing the intellectual strands that went into the development of the novel in English. Um, It's mostly concerned with literally the English novel, but in being concerned with the English novel, it has to take into account all of these other little things. So, let's dig in. Okay, so Echeverria... Uh, begins I think fascinatingly by looking at the title of Don Quixote because it's not exactly Don Quixote it's the ingenious um, Hidalgo Don Quixote of La Mancha and you can Mm -hmm. unpack each and every one of those terms and he does so according to (laughs) what they would mean in the 17th century. So he starts off with um, in the first place Don Quixote is an Hidalgo, Uh, he's not a caballero. Okay, what does that mean? Caballero would have been uh, a knight, like literally a knight, and pretty much the soldiering class, like that soldiering class of aristocracy. So it's sort of kind of what you've been charting. Hidalgo is uh, a contraction of Io de Algo, which means son of something. Hmm. Like, literally, that's what it means, son of something. So it's kind of like a shorthand. Okay.
0: He's of, important
2: yeah. somebody in some sort of way. What it signifies <laughs> right. is... Yeah. What it signifies is aristocracy that's not quite what it had been several generations before, where yeah. you would have been fighting for something. It's just, yeah, okay, I guess he owns land and he's somebody now. But anyway, so it's it's important that he's not a caballero he's not a knight he's not a soldier he's yeah. just somebody who owns something and okay i guess he's somebody all right so ingenious today uh, in spanish sort of signals wit or intelligence or he's you know kind of crafty but in the 17th century when um, when cervantes was writing it meant something more it was kind of like a heightened wit Or a heightened understanding, like some kind of, I guess, illuminated knowledge, so he can see further and faster. Okay, now that is ironized by the fact that we've got Quixote, which – all right, Echeveria says – is kind of this weird hodgepodge thing which suggests maybe cheese, maybe somebody's jaw, maybe a cheesy jaw, maybe it it's just meant to sound ridiculous. Hmm. And Ote itself is this kind of diminutive. Um, I, I think the way he phrases it is that, you know, now you would use Ido or Ida, sort of like, okay. um, like gordito means little fatty. Yeah, yeah. Like so it's a kind of diminutive added to this silly-sounding word that's made even more oxymoronic by adding "don" to it. Right. So it's kind of elevating stupidity. Now and then, the and the yeah. don would have been
1: would the don title have been reserved for for caballero and up? Kind of ranking is
2: that part of the ironizing? Um, I th- there or was it a broader term? I think the the way Echeverias talks about it, it's it's sort of a broader term. Okay, like I, I think it signifies the lower aristocracy as okay. much as the sort of I guess soldierly caste. Gotcha. But it, it's meant to to elevate, and it's just oxymoronic because it's elevating the ridiculous. And then you've got La Mancha, and he he has a couple of paragraphs. I was kind of curious about what La Mancha is actually like, and he has a couple of paragraphs describing it. Um, just arid, flat, nothing scrubland. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> he compares it to saying you're from Poughkeepsie. <laughs> right. And, and <laughs> yeah, Poughkeepsie it's really, is a fine place, uh, but it's just – yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's not exactly the most exciting place. And it's, so –
1: it's in yeah, the region it's in the region known as Extremadura which yeah. would be the the far side of the Duros river. So mm-hmm. it, even the the name of the uh, sort of the province itself was like, "Oh yeah, you're in the the, the high end of nowhere."
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> it it's like okay, the extraordinary insights of mister Hurdy from <laughs> you know, Podunk, Massachusetts. And yeah. you're okay, you've figure it all out. And so it's it's this combination of elevation and deflation all at the same time. Which really is is sort of how the writing of Don Quixote works. And I guess mm-hmm. we'll talk about this a little bit more next time. But one of the things Cervantes is great at is elevation and deflation all at the same time. And that's really where he gets his company. Okay. So, that gets us into the structure of Don Quixote. And for for our purposes, the way we're going to do this, we're talking about the prologue now, uh, the prologue and the sort of extraneous material. Next episode, we'll get into, you know, book one. And then we'll have a later episode on book two. And, all right, it's, it's sort of a, a I guess... <sighs> critical cliche to say that the first book is the renaissance book the second book is the baroque book and so there's some stuff that i kind of want to hold back i don't want to talk about the baroque too much now Mm -hmm. um we'll sort of tiptoe around it but for all intents and purposes uh it really sort of seems like uh cervantes only really intended to write The first book. And of the first book, he only really sort of maybe kind of intended to write Don Quixote going out on his first sally, coming back, and then crashing. But (laughs) (laughs) he started adding to it and adding to it and adding to it. And then invented the character of Sancho Panza, and then had them go out again, and it got even weirder and crazier as it went along. So I think this was something that I brought up with Ludovici. Uh, the, there's something about this book, and this is what also, you know, as an aside, as a digression, but this is all digressions, what makes <laughs> it fascinating is that it's extraordinarily structured at the same time as it's extraordinarily improvised. Mm-hmm. So he keeps sort of writing it along as he goes along, but he's got an idea in mind of how to put it all together.
1: Ah, so yeah. that's
2: sort of what makes it really kind of spectacular. I'm right, going so, to
1: I'm going to inject a little bit of low culture into this because what you're describing sounds a lot like uh, how a well run Dungeons and Dragons campaign might go.
2: No, where, exactly.
1: Yeah, where you have this, you know, you, ha- you have the broad outlines, but because you're Collaborating and creating the story, you're necessarily going to have to allow for digression, even sort of digression off, way off of what you originally intended, but you're going to bring it back around to sort of, you know, your, your, your broader uh, schema.
2: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, okay. And to I, I guess since we're doing the overview, I'll spill a little bit of this. Um, the first book of Don Quixote was more or less self-contained, As self-contained as it could be. Mm -hmm. And then what happened was somebody wrote their own sequel to Don Quixote. So Cervantes got got pissed that somebody stole his work. (laughs) And he wrote a second book to Don Quixote whose whole point was to have adventures so that a real second book of Don Quixote could be written. Because Don Quixote reads the fake book and gets yeah. mad. <laughs> so he goes back out. And you have this extraordinary self-awareness in the second book that's there in the first book, but like taken times 20. The self-awareness in the first book is times 10. And I'll talk a little bit about the genre in a second. But the self-awareness in the first book is extraordinarily heavy. Mm-hmm. And then it's weighted even more heavily in the second book. So you've got this weird thing where in the second book, characters from the first book have read the the poorly written book about their lives. Mm-hmm. And now they decide to go out to have more adventures so that somebody, somewhere, can write the adventures that they will have as they go on. So it's this kind of doubling back on itself. It's really weird. But for all intents and purposes, for right now, um, Don Quixote, book one, Cervantes never really thought about it as, as book one. It was just what he meant to write. Yeah. But even within that, it got away from him. Okay, so the structure of the first book is as a manuscript found and translated. So you've got this kind of metafictional aspect where the writer is someone other than the narrator. The narrator claims to have found this thing that he did not write but had translated. Yeah. Now, this sort of kind of comes about, what is it, about a quarter of the way through the first book <laughs> where we're in the middle of the action and all of a sudden it stops and says, and now I can't continue any further because... I don't have any more manuscripts, so I suppose the story must stop. And then in the next chapter, he finds the next part of the manuscript. Yeah. So it's this weird kind of metafictional interruption. So- and I thought it,
1: I thought it was hilarious. Like the first time I read it, I was <laughs> I was uh, and and this is I guess this goes to show like kind of I, I've learned a little more since then because this was a couple of years ago when yeah. I, when I first read it. Um, but I was I was honestly surprised that something you know from so long ago could be so madcap okay. about it. Like,
2: that Cerv- was really astonishing to me. Oh, I got things to say about that. <laughs> Cervantes right. didn't invent that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I I read this for the first time when I was 17, and I I was totally steeped in Monty Python, and I thought, oh my god, they ripped it off Cervantes. Cervantes yeah. ripped it off of Amadis of Gaul. Okay. Okay. Okay, so I'll I'll talk about that in a second. Yeah. But um, anyway, so you've got this weird kind of overall structure where it it proclaims to be a manuscript found and translated, and then um, the manuscript requires the putative narrator or editor, right, to go looking for more pieces. He finds the pieces in Arabic and then has to pay... A Muslim to translate them, mm-hmm. so there's this weird kind of feeling all throughout the rest of the book, like that's set up by the author himself. That this might or might not be accurate. Yeah. Okay, keep keep that on the back burner because it cracks open uh, an epistemological problem, and I've ranted about this on the blog. But you know, epistemology is all about. Uh, what we can know and how we know it, and this, this real search for what is the true truth. <clears throat> and really and truly, Don Quixote, as much as Montaigne is about what we can know and how we know it, um, there's this extraordinary epistemological problem lurking all throughout this book, and it all has to do with the genre. Okay, so you've got this, this level of dissonance. Between what you claim to be reading and what you're actually reading, and whether or not what you're reading is actually accurate. Yeah. Okay. So that's just within the larger seeming, <clears throat> excuse me, seeming frame of the narration. Okay. Now, within the narrative, uh, we've got this first layer, which is Don Quixote. So, Don Quixote sallies forth, um, he has a couple of stupid uh, combat experiences, i.e. Uh, gets beat up by a bunch of prostitutes, and so he comes back beat up, and there's this whole situation where uh, he's convinced that he's delusional by his niece, and by the, the local priest and the barber, and they sort of, you know, do all this stuff that we'll talk about next time. And Don Quixote goes to bed, the end, but then he wakes back up and decides to go out again. And he meets Sancho Panza, they go out and have their adventures, they go to a couple of ends, they get in trouble with um, the Holy Order, which is kind of like the FBI and then uh, they go to a couple more ends and then they go out to the wilderness they meet a couple of people all the people sort of miraculously coalesce around this one kind of weird plot they decide to trick Don Quixote to um, I guess get him in a cage so that they can take him back to La Mancha they deliver him back to La Mancha he goes back, restores his sanity the end Okay, so that's kind of like this main sort of structure for the novel or, or, or for this thing that we're reading. But within that, you've got a bunch of different genres that are poking through. Okay, so the first genre that, that it, it keeps repeating is the picaresque. And yeah. the yeah. picaresque is sort of the rogues' tale or the autobiography of the thief. Um, aside from the picaresque, of course, you've got the chivalric romance. Uh, the chivalric romance is the knightly tale. You've got the novella, which is this weird kind of genre that's like a longer extended version of a tale. Hmm. Um, yeah you've got several versions of the pastoral sort of floating throughout. And then you've got these other kinds of love stories with the romantic couples that are are very close to being tales like the kind that were written in the Decameron. And I'm going to come back to Boccaccio's Decameron in, in a second. Yeah, yeah. Okay? So you've got all these weird genres Kind of crammed together, and you know what? I'm I'm an amateur, and I'm probably missing twelve. Because <laughs> what it seems like Cervantes was doing was taking all of the genres that he had at hand. Oh, and okay, they've got conversion narratives, they've got soldier stories, they've got autobiography, they've got you know, and and I'm just thinking of these things offhand. There are all these genres that he's cramming together. And the thing is, this is what makes Don Quixote unique. Um, I, I can talk about this by using the counterexample of Boccaccio's Decameron. Uh, the Decameron, and if nobody's read it, go check it out because it's wonderful and dirty and pervy and fun and <laughs> silly. Right. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's kind of, a, a <clears throat> I guess, a, a, an Italian version, an Italian Renaissance version of uh, The Thousand and One Nights. And Boccaccio was a, a writer. I, I think we talked about him when we were doing Chaucer, because he was a major influence on Chaucer. And he was an Italian writer who uh, sort of was following the footsteps of Dante in some ways. But instead of writing this kind of, you know, divine comedy, he wanted to write, you know, I guess what uh, Balzac would later call the human comedy. Yeah, a profane comedy. Yeah. No, it, it, essentially. Though it, I mean, a lot of the tales, even if they are borderline prof- profane or a little dirty, yeah, they still oh, often have a moral lesson at yeah. the end. Well, I and, just mean
1: profane as as uh, in the dichotomy of profane and sacred. Okay, not, sure. Not sure, necessarily sure, obscene, yeah. but profane.
2: Though, okay. So anyway, uh, <laughs> <but> also <laughs> profane. But the, the Decameron is a hundred stories told by this group of nobility and the whole uh frame text is that they've um they've left the city and gone to the countryside because they're trying to flee the plague and they hold themselves up in this manner and sort of shut everything out but they're in the country they've shut everything out and they're bored yeah. So they have to start telling each other stories in order to, you know, pass the time. It's, it's kind of like this game that they've got. And it, it's very interesting because the frame text is this thing where, okay, it allows you to move from one story to the other. So you've got these characters who are sort of uh, um, the first layer text, and then second layer text is the story that they tell. And Boccaccio is really pretty savvy about keeping the frame, like, here. Okay, nobody can see me making this maneuver. But the frame is is pretty solid around the hole. And then within the frame, we know exactly where we stand. So it's like watching a very simple flashback in a movie that has only one flashback. Hmm, yeah. Does that make sense? So it's yeah. it's... The frame is established pretty solidly, and then what what happens within the frame is easy to determine. Now, one of the things I kept thinking back to was when we were doing Chaucer, and I know we didn't take on the whole of the Canterbury Tales, and I'm still extraordinarily guilty about that, but in the whole of the Canterbury Tales, there's a lot of interaction within the frame. Yeah. Um, People keep popping in and out, and there's conversation, and there's rough play, and there's this kind of back and forth. Um, Don Quixote does not keep the frame intact. In fact, at every moment, there's always this puncturing of the frame. And so even, okay, you can't say that all of these genres take place as a subframe within the mainframe of Don Quixote because Don Quixote keeps interacting with all these other genres and pulls them into his own activity so it's this weird way where Don Quixote can interact through a multiplicity of genres and then alter those genres because they have to capitulate to his narrative so in this weird way Don Quixote is controlling the narrative of his own life. Yeah. And Cervantes didn't even invent that. He just took it weirder. Okay. <laughs> right. So I
1: guess that'll anyway. be the that'll be the mantra for for uh, Cervantes. It was like I'm going to well, I'm going to
2: take what you did and do it weirder. Yeah, he he takes all these things and then tweaks them into whatever it is that this thing is. Yeah. And there's a part of me that really wants to throw down and say, okay, this is a novel. Right. And and I'll talk about why I'm I'm problematizing that in a little bit. Okay. So anyway, Which is, you- well that's that's
1: bold because I always you know, I always see Don Quixote trotted out as the dawn of the novel as a form. So this is uh this is exciting folks. Claude's gonna <laughs> he's gonna throw hands at uh at a lot of scholars here.
2: It, it, it's exciting for two people. Okay,
0: <laughs> so. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, What the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass?
2: Um. All right. So that's what's weird about Don Quixote, is it really dismantles and disfigures the the frame narrative, so that it becomes much more difficult to determine what's the frame and what's not. And I, I would, if you want to see, um, a, a contemporary thing that does this, uh, if you have access to the television and can see the show Legion. It completely undermines, at every step of the way, what you think you know and how you think you know it. Um, it's a TV show that uh, it – how do I put this? It uses the tricks that we usually use to know when something is true or false within a televised narrative. Mm-hmm. And then keeps turning those and turning those and turning those and turning those until you're not sure what it signifies at all, if anything. Okay. Or uh, uh, another one that that I think is is comparable is the recent um, Twin Peaks, I guess revival. Yeah, yeah. But that whole thing was about TV. In a lot of ways. And the genres of TV and drawing your attention to what you're doing when you're watching anything. So there's something in Don Quixote that's ultra aware of all these genres working together, but also the way in which the the lines blur, the lines blend. Mm -hmm. And it's not easy to know what you're participating in and what you're not participating in. Okay, so the first genre that I was talking about was the picaresque. Yeah, and the picaresque is sort of the rogue's tale or or the rogue's autobiography, or the thief's autobiography. And um, the, the the quintessential one is uh, Lazarillo de Tormes, where you've got this narrator who has ended up as the official husband of the courtesan to a bishop. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So his <laughs> his whole shtick is, hey, listen, uh, I'm getting paid off to officially marry this woman who's having sex with this other guy, and let me tell you, it's it's a fresh gig. Uh, this rocks. Um, but here's how I got here. And so he goes through all of the horrible stuff that he's done and all the, you know, but it's even not really so horrible because the people he's taking advantage of are worse than him. It's almost like if Breaking Bad was a comedy. Yeah. And um, essentially you end up <clears throat> with this character who you can't help but love. He's the lovable rogue. Yeah. Now, it, it's... It's interesting because – and I'm drawing from McKeon here, the origins of the English novel. Uh, the thing that, that McKeon points out is that it's literary autodidacticism. Uh, the, the, the thief or the rogue or the picaro knows the sort of – okay. he picks up the bits and pieces of what he knows and puts them together into literary form. And there's a kind of literary self-fashioning which occurs within the scope of this. And McKeon is kind of interesting because what he says this draws from is, all right, the long history is Augustine's Confessions – which is sort of the first autobiography, yeah. Where where he put together, okay, this is where where I was. This is who I was. This is how bad I was, but this is how I transformed, and this is who I am now. Yeah. Um. He traces that through Fox's Lives of the Martyrs, okay, and then yeah. gets at the Picaro, where he says essentially what this does is it echoes the in. It echoes this minute-to-minute, event-to-event-to-event narrative structure. So it's chronological. Now, that sounds revolutionary, but it was in the 16th, 17th century. I mean, that doesn't sound revolutionary now, but it was in the 16th, 17th century. Like, oh, we're going to do this... Time-wise, instead of like major bits and pieces,
1: oh, right? Instead of major bits and pieces, uh, which are selected specifically because of their polemical value to whatever I'm trying to get across, etc., etc., etc. Yeah,
2: exactly. Right. So, <clears throat> um, part of what's going on in the picaresque is this kind of literary self-fashioning. It's self-creation out of the autobiographical mode. That's what was occurring with Augustine. That's kind of sort of what's occurring with um, the Book of Martyrs. But once it gets taken in this kind of, I guess, anti-clerical or anti-moral way, Mm -hmm. um, it becomes more about opening up chronology rather than polemics.
1: Yeah. Okay. That's that's really crazy how – and it's so interesting to look back from now to think – that a literary form of going and then this happened and then this happened and then this happened was something that really had to be discovered
2: well yeah in it's a way, cause and or developed. yeah one of the, the the things in don quixote is that most of the characters that don quixote meets in the first book like th- at least in the first sally like the first time he goes forth mm-hmm. most of the characters are <clears throat> picaros former Picaros or would-be Picaros. They're they're people who either had been these Picaresque characters, they're people who are in the process of being them, or they're people who want to become them. And part of what this signifies is that the genre and the character have met. Yeah, These are people who are modeling their lives after a genre that's already available, and they're merging their lives into that literary genre. Okay, so the Picaresque is flowing all through Don Quixote, and there's a way of thinking about Don Quixote himself as a, uh, a Picaresque character, but I'll get to that in a second. Okay, so the second one that you've got is the, the prose romance. And this is kind of... It, it's weird and I'm just I'm going to hope I don't get sued but all this stuff is free <laughs> online so, yeah. so I'm just going to read a, a, a section from Echeverria uh, he's hes describing the prose romance and, and I want to read an expert's take on this because it, it's tough to get your head around Uh, if you haven't read a bunch of these. But essentially he says, Each of these books had as a hero a knight errant who incarnated heroism and amorous fidelity and was the defender of justice and the oppressed. The knight was involved in the most extraordinary adventures Against fantastic and frightening wrongdoers, his passionate love for an idealized lady dominated his thoughts. Love was a fundamental component of these narratives. The knight would offer his lady the glory of his feats. This love for a lady is the same as courtly love, which, as you may know, inspired the medieval lyric as a fashion involving all sorts of rituals in the course of elegant ladies. It is too long a story to be told here, but think of the romances of chivalry as being shot through, as it were, with the idea of courtly love. The knights were not just military heroes, but also great lovers. Uh, these are stories of knights. It's the knights of the round table. They're going out to commit you know, wonderful, heroic, soldierly deeds, and they're doing it under the guise of, of love, or mm-hmm. under the aegis of love. Right. Okay, so the romance is this weird genre. Okay. And it's weird for a couple of reasons. Amaris of Gaul is the sort of preeminent one in the Spain in which Cervantes is writing. Yeah. Okay? And
1: I'm I would, going to jump in with Amaris that was specifically attempted to be banned in the New World Empire uh, because it was considered so – I guess because it, it was considered uh, somehow frivolous or corrupting to morals somehow. In any case, that was one that was so popular – it was deeply popular among all these conquistadors and the kinds of people who went over to the New World. It was Amaris. They loved it.
2: Okay. Well, it's interesting you should bring that up because yeah. the prose romances were problematic on a lot of different levels. Um, <clears throat> they they're problematic politically, but they're also problematic philosophically. Um, here's here's the issue they open up an epistemological problem. What is truth? Okay? Now, we're talking about a a period of time where a lot of thinkers are rediscovering Aristotle. And the thing about Aristotle is he sets in opposition poetry and truth. Um, Poetry... Is not expected to be true. Yeah, and that's fine because there's there's this idea that, and you can read this in in Aristotle's poetics, Poetry does one particular thing or does a couple of uh, different particular things, <clears throat> but it doesn't necessarily need to be factually accurate. Uh, and Aristotle's wrestling with he's wrestling with Homer. Um, how do we think about giants? How do we think about all the fantastic things that Odysseus claims to see? Yeah. How do we think about all the fantastic things that um, that uh, all the Greek heroes did? Okay. Well, it doesn't have to necessarily be literally true, but you can say it's poetically true. Yeah. The problem is prose. Okay. So um McKeon really opens this up <clears throat> uh when he's thinking about what what this entails. Uh he says <clears throat> He says, but it was a particularly apposite revival since it conferred on modern culture the critical distinction between poetry and history, which had been one fruit of that far more ancient period of modernity. The history of Aristotle's influence in this respect is complex and uneven. Many Renaissance writers affirmed the general notion of the autonomy of poetry, but many more did not. And we must look to the later 18th century for the real ascendancy of this idea. Some like Tasso responded to the Aristotelian doctrine of imitation by elaboration of a notion of poetic verisimilitude that was distinct from factual history. But what about imitative prose narrative? The problem is not only that Aristotle was silent on the subject, but also that in the Renaissance, it was quite customary to think of history as a prose form. Okay. Yeah. So when you're reading the history of the ingenious Hidalgo (laughs) Don Quixote de Mancha, what are you reading? All right. When you're reading the history of Amadis de Gaulle, what are you reading? What is real? What is not real? And the prose romance kind of doesn't quite know where it stands. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, so, uh, Yeah,
1: it, it relies on this kind of uh, – well, it relies on the ambiguity. It's expressing poetical – it's expressing – well, I don't want to use the word truth. It's expressing poetical sentiment without meter and that is itself a big problem.
2: <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Because there's an expectation for truth yeah. and this is – The epistemological issue that it cracks open. Yeah. What exactly is it that I'm reading? Is it a history? Is it a history that's fake? Where do I stand in terms of this? And then keep in mind that a lot of these things are drawn from actual events to some capacity. Right, right. There could be some of these guys who were maybe sort of kind of real, and some of the battles definitely did take place, but was this guy necessarily fighting a giant and a wizard? Yeah. Okay. So what is the reality? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So, so the prose romance is an extraordinarily fraught genre. What is, What is truth? Okay, it cracks open this problem, and the thing is, uh, even though, um, even though, okay, we're accustomed to thinking, all right, if if I'm watching the Avengers beat up Ultron or Thanos (laughs) or whatever it is, it's not real. But what is real? Okay, so the The genre itself begins incorporating in part of the problem and trying to forestall this question. <clears throat> so I'm going to risk a lawsuit and uh, read from McKeon's work that... Uh, because the 12th century romance had maintained both romance and historical elements in suspension, the early modern auto-critique of romance falsehood also entails a critique of what is now separated out as a false historicity. The phenomenon is somewhat older than the Renaissance. Amadis of Gaul, the epitome of chivalric extravagance for early modern skeptics, itself contains considerable anti-romance sentiment. And when the fourteenth century reworking of earlier redactions was itself revised and expanded at the end of the fifteenth century, the author's general skepticism about such antique narratives is concentrated not just on their incred- incredibility, but on the pointedly historical pretensions of feigned histories in which marvelously unnatural things are to be found, which is very rightly ought to be deemed fakes. And that's a quote from the text itself. The new book five (coughs) excuse me of the present project then becomes a self consciously parodic case in point, quote unquote, validated by a ludicrous version of the topos of the discovering of the manuscript it quote came to light in a stone tomb discovered underground below a hermitage near Constantinople and was brought to this part of Spain by a Hungarian merchant being inscribed on parchment (laughs) so old that only with great difficulty were those who knew the language able to read it. Okay. Right. (laughs) What does that sound like? That sounds...
1: yeah. No, I was, please. No, please, was, was going to say that it sounds a lot like the uh, contrived history of the manuscript of the Ingenious Gentleman of La Mancha. <laughs> okay.
2: <laughs> the the point that McKeon is making is that Amadis of Gaul uh, it, it goes through several several editions with several editors sort of compiling these bits and pieces of anonymous things into one book, and in order to say okay we're telling the truth, but I don't know, maybe quite not, but still this is the work that was handed to us. Mm -hmm. Um, We gotta go through several different layers. So the the sort of metafictional aspects which are trying to maintain the illusion of reality (laughs) are already in there in the chivalric romance itself. So this is what I'm saying that Cervantes takes these and says, oh, you're gonna make it metafictional. Okay. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I'm to have show, some fun yeah. with this. <laughs> I'll show you some metafictional, right? Yeah. So I and and that's the point, is that you can't disentangle the metafiction from the fiction, right. from the substory, from the this, from the that, because all of these voices merge together. And, and I'm going to get into that later. And and that's, like, just incredible that Cervantes includes
1: this... He includes that angle in his parody of yeah. chivalric romance. Even, like, the... He includes a parody of the provenance of chivalric romance in his parody of chivalric romance. Yeah,
2: yeah. A- and McKeon's point is that the chivalric romance was was self-parodic without knowing it. I mean, it, like <laughs> right. I, I, I think that's sort of kind of what he's getting at. Yeah. Okay. So the 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 meta- the metafictional aspects of Quixote were already sort of right there. Okay. So then you've got the pastoral, and the pastoral is is this weird poetic genre. Um, It's mostly poetic. I guess sometimes it deals with prose. It goes back to antiquity, where basically the the idea is that it's too... Complicated to live in the city. So, what we got to do is get out to the country and, and I guess, live the simple life, live the rustic life where we don't well, that- have to deal with all these city customs and things like that. And we can go be shepherds and relax and sing some songs and yeah. not to ha- have to deal with anything.
1: I mean, that goes all the way back to Hesiod. Right? I mean yep. works and days. That's, I mean they there. Yeah, yeah. That
2: that's what I'm saying. I mean okay, it, yeah. it's got a long history. <laughs> yeah. And part of what okay, I'm I'm gonna read a a seventeenth century poem which I think ca- captures this. And Christopher Marlowe is long dead. He had a knife in his eye. Um, <laughs> I, I, I don't think he's gonna sue me, but if his ghost comes back to kill me, well, there are worse ways to go. Um <clears throat> This is his pastoral, The Passionate Shepherd to His Love, and this captures, I think, everything about the pastoral that you you really sort of need to know. It says, Come live with me and be my love, and we will all the pleasures prove, that valleys, groves, hills, and fields, woods, or steepy mountain yields, and we will sit upon the rocks, seeing the shepherds feed their flocks, by shallow rivers to whose falls melodious birds sing madrigals, and I will make thee beds of roses, and a thousand "'Fragrant Posies, a cap of "'flowers, and a kirtle, embroidered "'all with leaves of myrtle, "'a gown made of the finest "'wool, which from our pretty lambs we "'pull, fair-lined slippers "'for the cold, with buckles of the "'purest gold, a belt of straw "'and ivy buds, with coral "'clasps and amber studs, "'and if these pleasures may thee move, "'come live with me, and be my "'love. The shepherd's swains "'shall dance and sing for thy delight "'each May morning, if these Delights thy mind may move then live with me and be my love okay what a wonderful poem yeah. but there are a couple of things that we should be suspicious of <laughs> as always uh, this is a, an extraordinarily self-consciously urbane poem masquerading as country pleasures hmm. to, to yeah. use that 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 term from Hamlet um, come live with me and be my love he keeps repeating that and the idea uh Is Well, did you notice that they didn't talk about marriage? Right. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. The the idea is if we return to nature, we return to Eden where we don't need any of this highfalutin courtly nonsense. And we certainly don't need the law. Right. Um, This is natural order shall take its toll its course and will just be what we are yeah and what a lovely vacation version of you know living in the country this is
1: <laughs> yeah. No. yeah very little of the uh you know hail knocking down all your crops and uh you know the uh the cows coming down with the hoof and mouth disease or what have you and
2: or yeah. yeah, or what it actually means to be a shepherd, not to fend off <laughs> yeah. wolves. Well, it actually means to be an agricultural worker in any of the pre-industrial societies. <laughs> exactly. Um, one of the things that Don Quixote keeps running into is actual shepherds who look at him like, "What the hell are you talking about?" <laughs> he keeps going into these long rants or, or, or these these sort of long um, self conversations about what's better, arms or letters, because in uh, Roman literature, they would have these long debates of a soldier, you know, an imperial soldier, who's aristocratic in some capacity, talking to a shepherd, and they would have these debates. Well, what's better, to be a soldier or, you know, a a scholar? And the shepherd will say, well, I don't know. Why don't you tell me? And then the soldier would go off. And these guys are looking at him like, what the... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what? Yeah. Do do you want some cheese? Do you not want some cheese? What are you talking <laughs> like, about? Like
1: quit busting my balls here, man. What are what are you on about?
2: Yeah. Okay, and the thing about the the reason I always go back to Marlowe is this is a wonderful Poem about the good life in the country, written by a guy who's extraordinarily educated, living in the city, right? Modeling his writing off of the best of urban literature that was handed to him from the Roman Empire. Yeah, and so there's there's this kind of like double edge to this, and the double edge is exactly what Cervantes wants to keep going back to. Um, you keep finding people who are fashioning themselves off of literary genres, and one of the genres that people are fas- fashioning themselves off of is the pastoral. Yeah. Uh, we're going to see a couple of characters, uh, in fact, one of your favorite characters, who seems kind of sort of sympathetic, mm-hmm. but is actually maybe just full of it. Mm. Because she's sort of making herself into something she's not. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there's this kind of aristocratic downplaying that's kind of like, hey, what exactly are you doing? So we'll we'll get to that in the next one. But um, as one of the genres that's going into this, the pastoral, you keep seeing these rich kids playing shepherd. Yeah. And it goes for both genders. And there's a gender power politics going, but there's also this class power politics going that's gonna be very important. Okay. So aside from the pastoral, you've also got this weird thing called the novella. And the novella is sorta of kind of like an extended tale. It's a tale like from Boccaccio, but it's longer and it's a little more Mm caricature-y. It's sort of filled with stock characters. And so if you want to see it in action, towards the end of book one, Don Quixote uh, ends up in this inn. He always ends up in an end. <laughs> Again, totally like Dungeons and Dragons. Continue, <laughs> right? But they end up in this end where all of the characters coalesce, and so you've got five different stories that end up coming together in this end. And then the innkeeper says, "Hey, I I've got this chest that's got this manuscript here. I can't read it, but I think it's pretty good. Here, you priest, you know how to read." Read this to us, and it's this long kind of novella in the middle of the novel. Um, it's the the tale of the improper curiosity, and so it's this sort of like we stop all the action to have this sort of sub story there, and it, it's kind of like um, I guess the be- best way to think about it is sort of commedia dell'arte mm-hmm. in prose form. So. He takes that and incorporates it in. and And Cervantes even wrote novellas um, after the semi success of Don Quixote. I say semi success because it became well known. Cervantes became famous, but not rich yeah. uh, like you do. Uh, he tried to sort of recoup some money by making a bunch of exemplary novellas, or you know, a, and publish these things, these long extended tales, which. They're even metafictional novellas. They're sort of stock characters who recognize their stock characters or who model themselves on stock characters. So there's this weird self-consciousness going on throughout that. but um he he tries to publish that, and I guess that makes a little bit for him. But he writes one into Don Quixote. yeah, so he even incorporates that into the novel. Okay, and then you've got all of these love tales, yeah, and there there is sort of these various love tales that seem like tales that could very well fit in Boccaccio, except they partake of the main narration they they're part and parcel with Don Quixote's quest and so it's sort of like, well, this isn't quite its own contained tale, because all of a sudden it's bleeding into this major narration. Yeah. So, what do you do? That comes back to this this sort of overarching idea that there is no frame. Yeah. Don Quixote is so much a part of the frame. He and Sancho, and, and we can't disclude Sancho, because Sancho is the beginning of this kind of self-awareness. Um... It's so much a part of the frame that you can't delineate the individual pieces and they all become a whole, which I think is what makes this a novel. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, <clears throat> right. So that's the...
1: So what we might... Okay, so this is so this is, this is interesting because what you're, what, you're, what you're coming at me with is that the novel itself is a kind of amalgam... It's not necessarily a development out of any one genre but an amalgam of these various disparate parts together devoid of a frame but that creates a new frame because well, if you can include these components, that is a novel. And that's – it's – I think at least for me anyway, that has been one of the more interesting kind of – what paradigm breaks I guess for – me in thinking more seriously about literature, I guess, you know, beginning in college and, you know, talking about these things, but mostly like actually like talking with you about these things um, is that I just thought of a novel. as like, oh, that's just a long story. <laughs> I, I'm real, seriously, though, and, and that's what most people sort of coming at it will think like, oh, a novel is when you tell a story and it goes on for a long time. And but you don't think of how it developed as a type of story that people tell and why and what components go into it. This is fantastic. I love Don Quixote. I'm so excited for how where this project is going. <laughs> but
2: wait, there's more. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, it's it's all of these things interacting, and they're still interacting with this overarching supposed frame narrative yeah. of the narrator, editor, compiler of manuscripts, because in the second book... Don Quixote and Sancho Panza are aware of the editor, right? Are aware of the compiler <laughs> of manuscripts, <laughs> and are self-consciously performing for his amusement. Uh huh. God damn. And we are in cahoots with the narrator, editor, manufacturer of manuscript, man, manuscripts, because we have read book one. Yeah. Don Quixote has also read book one. so
1: So he's on an even playing field with the with the reader in a sense
2: so it's like if to go back to your analogy no the dungeon master gets done with everything he wrote down and the players look up at him and say now what (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right. <laughs> so it it becomes yeah, yeah. collaborative with the audience itself in this weird way. Yeah. So it 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 it's it's above and beyond weirdness. I mean, it, it's it, it's so elaborately constructed to play with our sense of of what we can know of reality of epistemology.
0: Yeah.
2: All right. So part of that has to do with don quixote's literary self-fashioning and this goes back to what i was saying about don quixote perhaps being kind of a picaro himself one of the things that you get <coughs> excuse me one of the things that you get with the picaro is the self-awareness that what he's doing is creating his own narrative well the picaro uh, after a while becomes a literary type mm-hmm. so you have Picaros commenting on other Picaros and saying well he did it this way now I'm going to do it this way well Don Quixote is coming up with his own identity he names himself, he creates himself Right. he takes the boringness that is his life and says well you know what, I'm not going to do that anymore, there's this idea I have about who I could be and what I could be I'm going to be that. So in some ways, he's got the same kind of self-fashioning ideal as the Picaro, but he chooses a different genre. Mm -hmm. He chooses the chivalric romance instead of the the criminal autobiography Mm -hmm. and decides to live that out. And that becomes a running theme throughout Don Quixote. You've got all these people who choose a particular genre to live in. Which goes back to our pastoral. Yeah. But it's not just the pastoral. There are all these genres. There are all these narratives to live in. And they kind of pick them out and write them out to see what it's going to be. Yeah. Um, to flash forward a little bit, that was James Joyce's whole project. Mm. He wrote over the whole of his life to explore the ways that we incorporate discourses we incorporate languages we incorporate narratives about who we should be and shouldn't be and what we are and Joyce's whole project was to explode that and make us aware of what it is that goes into making our identity it's just a bunch of narratives that we inherit no one is self-fashioned yeah Cervantes no. was already doing it <laughs> It, 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 I mean, it kind of astounded me when I was doing the, the the secondary research. I was like, "Yeah, Joyce was even a cheat." Yeah. Okay. So anyway, um, Don Quixote is is sort of creating himself as he goes along, and Cervantes is also creating him as he goes along. So there, there's this combination, ultimate goal and improvisation. Uh, throughout the whole thing. yeah. Okay, so um, <clears throat> the the point that I'm making is that, that Don Quixote dips into all these different genres but then he mutates the genres as he goes on and there's something about his self-fashioning and Echeveria points this out. <sighs> he invites us to fashion with him. Yeah. Um, you'll see this when Don Quixote gets back home and his niece has to say, uh, "Echeveria points out that subtly Cervantes is showing that Don Quixote's niece is just as savvy about the the chivalric romance as Don Quixote is, and so she has to say, "Hey, uh, sorry about your library. This wizard came and walled it up. I know what are you <laughs> going to do? It's a wizard." Yeah. Eh. Okay, that means she knows about wizards, that means she knows about magic powers, and that means she knows how to lie to get Don Quixote to believe her. Okay, that means he's drawn her into the fantasy to a capacity that she has to invent in order to accommodate him. And it does accommodate him, and he works with that. Sancho Panza is the extreme version of that because Sancho Panza keeps butting heads with Don Quixote, no. and they have to keep working it out. What is real, what is not? What is my point of view? What is your point of view? Well, how do we put these two together? And they keep changing each other as they go on. Okay. So, that brings us to uh, Bakhtin. Mikhail Bakhtin was... I, I think I talked about uh, about this with Ludovici. Mikhail Bakhtin was a... Uh, uh, a Russian literary critic from the early twentieth century. Um, he he had the he mostly worked on the novel, and he had these theories of the novel. And his main idea about the novel was that it was a dialogic form. What that means, <clears throat> excuse me, what that means is that the novel incorporates all of these different discourses. That make up a particular social moment, and then throws them together and has them work with each other or clash with each other or just you guys work it out. Yeah. Um, Bakhtin was writing under Stalin, so he had to be kind of cagey about who he wrote about (laughs) and who he didn't write about. (laughs) Right. Um, He mostly focused a lot on Dostoevsky. But Dostoevsky is drawing from a lot of different stuff, and one of the main ones is is Cervantes. Mm -hmm. Um, All of the levels of culture go into this. You're not getting the highbrow talking to the highbrow You're getting highbrow talking to this back alley thief who's talking to this clerk who works here, who's talking to an innkeeper over here, who's employing these two prostitutes, but they're talking to this farmer down the road. So you've got all these different voices from all these different registers of culture coming together clashing, conversing trying to sort it out or not trying to sort it out just seeing what happens when all the levels of society that aren't usually represented get together Yeah. Um, part of this was going on in Chaucer but not to the degree that it's right. going on in Cervantes I, I was
1: I was going to say sort of I was mentioning earlier about how the the story of the cultural milieu of Cervantes is necessarily a story of elite culture. And I I was going to sort of hedge that a little bit by sort of pointing out like, well, not exactly. And also sort of use rather Chaucer as a as another example of like, well, this was the audience was always going to be elite culture. Is the product itself of elite culture? That's perhaps not quite as clear.
2: Um, Yeah, yeah. And that's exactly why I was trying to get you to talk about the different languages and the different cultures, because that's kind of the whole point, is that on the one hand, you've got this overarching structure, which says Spain. Right. On the other hand, you've got all this craziness going on underneath, which is like... What is Spain? I'm a Basque. What is Spain? <laughs> right. I'm from Extremadura. What is Spain? I'm from here. What is Spain? I'm from. So it's it's all these different things just kind of like mixing up, mashing together. None of it fitting. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, I mean, the the most extreme case, Don Quixote is speaking. Uh, I guess it would be our equivalent of Shakespearean English. Mm-hmm. He's he's speaking in a way that's. Four hundred years outmoded,
1: right? It's it's, um, it's conscientiously antiquated speech. Yeah,
2: yeah, and I, I mean, it's hard to render that in in translation. I mean, I, I almost kind of want to see a translation that has him speak like the King James Bible, and everyone around <laughs> right. him is just speaking in 21st century American demotic, like yeah, you, huh? um. So, I mean, that's the most extreme level, but there are other levels within that that are just kind of like, okay, who's talking to who about what and how are they conversing? Yeah. All right, so you've got all these—it's multivocal. There are all these voices clashing together. Okay. Um, now, we're mostly dealing, in terms of primary text, with the prologue here. And here's the thing. We're finally getting to the text itself after (laughs) an hour and a half. Um, The prologue was written after the first book was written. Uh, After Cervantes had concluded the first book, he went back and wrote the prologue. So the prologue is this weird thing that's – if the self-consciousness is heightened already – the prologue heightens that already heightened self-consciousness so the the prologue i was rereading it this morning and it just struck me as so weird mm-hmm. it's just so slippery and it plays absolutely into everything we've been talking about in terms of the the epistemological problems all right <clears throat> Idle reader, without my swearing to it, you can believe that I would like this book, the child of my understanding, to be the most beautiful, the most brilliant, and the most discreet that anyone could imagine. But I have not been able to contravene the natural order. In it, like begets like. And so, what could my barren and poorly cultivated wits beget but the history of a child who is dry withered capricious and filled with inconstant thoughts never imagined by anyone else which is just what one would expect of a person begotten in a prison where even where every discomfort has its place and every mournful sound makes its home (laughs) okay so um idle reader someone who actually has time on their hands uh, that's a dig. <laughs> um, that's a subtle dig at anyone in Spain who would have actually been able to read and had the time to read, Why Are You Wasting Your Life? Right. <laughs> um, there, there, he he actually incorporates in, uh, Echeverria points this out, he incorporates in his version of the idle reader in a canon who's extraordinarily literate and fat, which means this guy has been doing nothing with himself. Okay, um, I'm not fat shaming. That's Cervantes fat shaming. Right. Okay, but um, he he says, okay, this is what's fascinating. He draws first upon the humors, dry, withered, capricious, and filled with inconstant thoughts. Um, that would seem to set up Don Quixote as a a, a stock character. The dry wit, yeah uh playing on these sort of tropes of the the humours that if you're dry you're this or if you're this you're this and if you're dry you're immediately crazy okay so he sets us up by saying that he has invented this thing while in prison and we're still not sure about that okay <laughs> yeah okay so he goes through a couple of meandering sentences <clears throat> And then he comes to this... But though I seem to be the father, I am the stepfather of Don Quixote, and I do not wish to go along with the common custom and implore you, almost with tears in my eyes as others do, dearest reader, to forgive or ignore the faults you may find in my child... For you are neither his kin nor his friend, and you have a soul in your body and a will as free as anyone's. And you are in your own house, where your lord as the sovereign, is master of his uh, revenues. And you know the old saying, under cover of my cloak I can kill the king, which exempts and excuses you from all respect and obligation. And you can say anything you desire about this history without fear that you will be reviled for the bad things or rewarded for the good that you might say about it okay what did he just do um okay so you have to forgive me because i invented this thing and i invented it in jail and oh my goodness what could you expect of this (laughs) but it would be stupid yeah (laughs) Right. Having said that, I'm only his stepfather I had nothing to do with this So listen right. um,
1: I also I also love that uh, That expression uh, Like, look, all the good things you say about it Just consider, like, look, consider Trash-talking it, your reward for saying anything good about
2: it Exactly Marvelous, Marvelous. So, so this, even within the prologue yeah. There's this, this Crack in the fissure um, This epistemological problem about what is true, what is not true. Do I like this thing? Do I not like this thing? Did I invent this thing? Did I not invent this thing? How indebted am I to this? What is this? Does that make sense? Like Everything he gives, he takes it away. And you're just sort of like, okay, so what am I supposed to feel? What am I supposed to think? What is your relationship to this? Did you write this? Did you not write this? what the hell is this that you're giving me? Okay, and then he takes it even further, all right? And Echevarria points this out. Cervantes has to operate in the dialogic mode. Yeah. Because what he does is invents... A buddy of his who comes to help him out. Cervantes says, I had a problem. I was just going to let this thing go. I was just going to not publish it. I was just going to sort of say, okay, fine. I wrote it, but whatever. It's going to go in a vault or I'm going to burn it because I couldn't think of a prologue because you need a prologue to set the stage to tell you what's going on. And I couldn't think of a prologue (coughs) and I couldn't think of the apparatus that goes around it because I have to have quotations and I have to have annotations and I have to have the poems that go in front and I have to have this and I have to have that. Um, basically, what he's talking about is the sort of editorial apparatus that went into the the prose narrative or whatever you wanted to call uh, what was or was not the chivalric romance. Um it would be filled with this sort of scholarly apparatus or pseudo-scholarly apparatus to give it the, the look of reality, right? Yeah. So Cervantes invents a friend who comes to him and says, "Ah, oh, don't worry about that. Listen, just make it up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So to show how truthful he's being, he tells you that he's lying, I've laid it all on the table, right? <laughs> so, how do we determine truth? It's okay. This is something that that I've been more and more enthusiastic about because. This came up when we were doing Montaigne, right? Right. And this came up. I, I wrote something for the blog, which was about modernism and, and postmodernism. You know, I, I I'm uncomfortable with the isms, yeah. <clears throat> but essentially, they're both dealing with truth in different ways, and the rupture of truth that came about due to you know increasing um, technological, social, social, political, economic, so on and so forth upheaval, yeah. But it strikes me now, since we've been doing this project, that everything we've been talking about has been an attempt to negotiate these problems of ontological epistemological crisis. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, um, Montaigne was all about, okay, this is what I've inherited. This, these are the texts that I've got. How do I make sense of them? in terms of my experience. Right. How does Even this, the wife how does of this, Bath.
1: Yeah. How does this comport with... You're absolutely right. I would say even the Molière, um, with like Tartuffe. Uh, yeah, easily. Oh,
2: my God. What, what, is, <laughs> what is the ideal? What mm-hmm. is the structure within which I've been led to believe truth operates? And what is my own experience of truth? Right. Um, and how do these things of,
1: comport with one another or not?
2: Yeah. Even Wife of Bath, you know... Authority, even if there was none, I'd say experience. Right. You know how do we put these things together? Um, What is truth when we've got this multiplicity of versions, sort of popping in and out? And Don Quixote is absolutely trying to deal with that, and he and Cervantes is doing that just in the prologue, just in ten pages. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) Um, (laughs) where he tells you, "Okay, listen, I'm lying." Right. So is the lie the truth, or is the lie the lie? What is this? All right, so anyway,, um, everything that he gives he takes away. and the the only truth we have is the dialogic. is the conversation with this fake friend. And the fake friend says, We'll just quote this, quote this, quote this, quote this. But if you pay close attention to his quotes, he gets them wrong. Um, he's assigning the wrong author to a particular quote and doing this. And so even that is problematic. So, anyway, um, basically, uh, he says, Okay, look, just make it up and it'll be fine. Yeah. And the only people who are going to care are going to be pedants anyway, and if they get in your way, just quote some Latin at them, and you're good. Right. (laughs) So we begin with this thing that is simultaneously proclaiming that it is the absolute truth because it's a lie.
0: Yeah.
2: (laughs) And then we go on. Alright, so that's, that's the genre stuff. Now, what was Cervantes' literary reputation? Okay, Don Quixote sold well and a lot of people read it, but Cervantes didn't make much money off it. Um, He was always sort of like teetering close to, you know, utter collapse. And uh, the thing was, in Spain at the time, Golden Age Spain, or what's called Golden Age Spain, uh, the theater was king and the king of the theater was Lope de Vega. Mm-hmm. So all throughout Don Quixote, there are all kinds of things about okay, this is what the true theater is, and this is how you know performance should actually function. but it was written by a guy whose plays were hated mm-hmm. and who couldn't get you know his his plays on stage, so he couldn't make a go of it, and so there's this weird kind of frisson there um so the theater was kind of sort of shut out to him um you had this highly ornate poetic culture so it was a culture of poetry and you know when we get to book two we can talk about the baroque but the the sort of ornate poetic culture begins as a kind of sort of model on Italian renaissance courtly poetry and then gets weird fast and I'm even and I'm ignoring the the theologically erotic poetry and I'm doing that for a reason (laughs) All right, um, so you, you've got all these other things that are kind of floating there that are sort of like the major things, and then you've got the popularity of the chivalric romance. So part of what Don Quixote or, or part of what Cervantes is doing is in this genre that's popular, but maybe not as highbrow. But incorporating a lot of weird highbrow tricks, and there's this way Ettriveria talks about this. I, I I keep feeling like I'm quoting two people. I really did read seven books on the subject. <laughs> but um, Echavaria talks about this that um, there's there's this image of Don Quixote and this image of Cervantes that Spain needed to have in the 19th and early 20th century of. <clears throat> the the naive writer the writer yeah. who is uncultured who is unlettered who is quote unquote the natural genius yeah and it needed to have that because england had that with shakespeare the natural genius and when we eventually get to shakespeare i'm gonna explode that one like you know nobody's business but um the 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 Nationalist literature needed to have its own indigenous genius, uh, someone who was of the place, who expressed the place without all this, you know, urbane formalizing from some other kind of nation because, hey, man, this is our guy. And if you look at history for five minutes, you realize that that's bullshit. (laughs) And if you look at Cervantes for less than five minutes, you realize that's bullshit. Because Cervantes spent time in Italy. Cervantes read Boccaccio. Cervantes was extraordinarily well-versed in Italian Renaissance literature. So he knew his sophisticated hoity-toity what-have-you. And he incorporates it. But in weird ways, right? Yeah. So he's extraordinarily well-read. He's extraordinarily um, self-conscious and self-aware and extraordinarily rhetorically ornate. But he employs it in these ways that are different than everything else that's going on on the ground. Um He's not as rhetorically ornate and strange as someone like Caveto. Caveto had a kind of like weird mastery, but he wrote in genres that are are not exor- not exactly um run-of-the-mill today. Yeah. So he wrote these these satires, these sort of dream vision satires and satirical poetry and other kinds of poetry that aren't exactly what we think of as you know the genre today, and so that kind of gets overlooked or ignored. Um, Gongora, another um, Baroque writer, was extraordinarily rhetorically ornate, so ornate that his name became synonymous with overly ornate writing. Right, but the entire uh, overly ornate movement. <laughs> yeah, right. But um, so he's. So So rhetorically ornate that it's uh, detached from the reality around it in a way that the modernists, the Spanish modernists, found fascinating and employed. Um, But that's sort of like this weird kind of thing that's its own Spanish thing. So Spain needed a hero and they found it in Cervantes and Don Quixote, which is comedic. Which yeah. is something that you could say expresses the geography and social structure of the place, which it absolutely does. And mm-hmm. expresses all the language and all the craziness of the place, which it absolutely does. Which is unlettered and untutored. No, it's not. Absolutely that. not.
1: Yeah. That's um, that, that's an astonishing reading. And it's <laughs> it's a reading at the most superficial level because it takes the I guess it takes the naivete of Don Quixote to be representative of a kind of naivete on the author's part, which right.
2: is an astonishing reading. Okay, well, I have one last point to make. Yeah, yeah, and that is Echeverria's sort of bugbear, which is La Celestina. Okay, um, the the work that that I haven't been talking about is La Celestina. So La Celestina is this thing written by uh, the author Rojas, and it's a tragic comedy. It's this weird sort of shadow piece to, or, or at least, Eudoria claims it's this kind of shadow piece to um, golden age Spanish literature. Uh, it's the piece which expresses, I think, for him, the spirit of the age most accurately. Mm-hmm but it's such a dark work mm-hmm. that it could not be incorporated in nationalist uh ways. No. Uh, Echeverria actually wrote a whole book on the baroque la celestina and um the the ways that it the the baroque gets incorporated into um Spanish American literature. Mm and la celestina begins as a comedy it's about these this aristocratic dude who fashions himself as a courtly lover and even though he could very easily petition his parents to go talk to the parents of the girl he loves who kind of has a thing for him uh so that they could merge their houses pull the fortunes have a fine courtly wedding uh he decides to go the 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 sort of tragic lover route and pine over her and try to have her before marriage by employing this go-between Celestina, who's this sort of witch figure who hooks them up, and then uh, the two sort of sub pimps she's got go and find out about each other and die or kill each other and then the prostitutes that were in love with them kill each other and then they kill celestina and then the the dude falls off a a wall while he's trying to get to the girl and he dies and then she sees him dead and she kills herself and then everyone's left dead (laughs) um the reason Echeverria keeps coming back to this and i think i know why Um, What all of those characters exhibit is the same kind of self-conscious, self-fashioning that Don Quixote and all the characters in Don Quixote are doing, except for them, it's tragic. Uh, It seems closer in line to something like James Joyce's Dubliners, where all of the characters are modeling themselves after these stultifying, paralyzing versions of what it means to be Irish. They've inherited these colonial ideas about Ireland and Irishness, and they're saying, okay, well, I have to live up to this, and it's going to make me a tragic hero. Yeah. Well, no, you're just stuck. And La Celestina seems to be about these characters who have read about who they're supposed to be, and they fashion themselves into it, and it kills them. Yeah. La Celestina is not a narrative. It's dialogue. It's a play without stage directions, without, without a narrator. So no. it's basically an unperformable play with a bunch of people speaking to each other. It's dialogic in its sheer form. It predates Don Quixote and it draws from Spanish Muslim storytelling. Yeah. So the kind of the the that's what I want to end on is this kind of if anybody's Interested in the history of the novel, or interested in Spanish literature, Echeverria makes some really bold claims, and I I think he's got something there. Yeah, that this kind of shadow text to Don Quixote is this very slim hundred page weird thing, and it kind of deserves a look at, but. Hmm. That's neither yeah. here nor there. So uh, that's about where I stand with the prologue to Don Quixote. We spent two <laughs> hours on the prologue to Don Quixote. I'm scared of what we're going to do for the first 800 pages, but we'll have to see what that is. We'll
1: just have to play it by ear. And, you know, I mean, I'm already, I, I'm already excited to read the text again with kind of – Fresh eyes almost like I'm coming at it in a much more informed place. Uh, I'm coming at it from, and especially with all that you've explained, um, or or rather, I should say the conversation we've had. I I should say, I haven't, like, you know, you had lots, you had lots to say, but we were, you know, we were in a conversation. Um, yeah, I'm excited to sort of to, to, to jump at it again. And, uh, and dear listener, dear reader, um, I'm excited for you guys to come along with us. Uh, I guess we should say our, our preferred um translation. I guess you mentioned it with the with the with Ludovici though, is the Grossman uh from yeah. two thousand three. Uh that's what yep. we'll that's what we'll be we'll be reading. But uh you know, uh pick your poison, you know. And I guess we'll we'll see you next time with uh, part one of Don Quixote, the the fantastical uh anarchic meta commentary on everything and nothing. <laughs>
2: Oh, my God. I, I'm still looking forward to it. So, uh, you know, we, we've we got the blog, the thecannonballpodcast.wordpress.com. So go check that out. I, I'm hoping to actually get some writing up there. Uh, I've been thinking more about these uh, epistemological problems, and, and I kind of want to revise my old statement. And so I'm hoping uh, to, to have some writing up there soon. Um, I guess you can find us on Facebook uh, if you search the Cannonball Podcast, mm-hmm. um, uh, rate and review on iTunes. I guess that's what we have to say. And uh, you drop us a line uh, at uh, claudmo inc at gmail.com. I always joked that if I had a company, it would be Claudmo Incorporated. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, it, if there's Anything you want to know? I don't know. Yeah, and we, anything and we you got to say, say about the canon? You know? Yeah,
1: like we we do read <clears> it, and uh, and honestly, for folks who've written in, like it, it's really it means a lot that you took some time out to let us know what you thought of the show, and uh, we've had folks writing in like saying like, hey, yeah, you've inspired me to pick this back up, or uh, you know, like this and i guess we should say if you feel like saying something negative i guess
2: you can say that too
1: but we'd but rather no. you didn't don't do that keep it to yourself just be nice to us we're good boys come on yeah.
2: and we're also on twitter uh i'm sure you can find us okay so i'm tired you done i i'm i'm, I'm all talked out for now but uh believe me I'll, I'll fill up my tank i'll have more say Alright, no, it's I I really love this book and I really go nuts over it and there's so much depth to it. And and if you're approaching it without, you know, thinking too hard about it, it's still a fun book. Yep. There there's just a lot here. So tune in next month and we're gonna dive right into it and uh, okay just to give you all the preview Daniel I think has the best line about this uh, a character dies from being friend zoned to death all right just just stay tuned because that to this day is still making me laugh All right well uh, take it easy and good night yeah good night.